Welcome back to the last episode of We Want More, the Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality Analysis podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Zuber, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Brian Deegan. Hello, everybody. And today we're joined by three guests. I think the biggest episode we've had, uh, yeah, easily. So we've got Inyas Brodsky. Hello. Matt Freeman today. Hi there. And special guest, Eliezer Yudkowski. Yo. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, 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 wow. Nice. So this will be fun. Um, So (laughs) I should have mentioned too, every, like, you know, how the fandom, or I guess, was it you or the fandom who divided the the story into like six quote unquote books? Uh, I did the uh, division, I believe. Yeah. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah. So after each one of those, we kind of did like a soft break for like a retro episode in the uh, Brian and I are both programmers in the agile-ish fashion. So every, you know, sprint or so, you're supposed to do a retro on how things are going, you know, what's what's new, all that sort of stuff. So we, we did those after each uh, book segment, and we just wrapped up Chapter 122 last week. So um, this is our, our grand finale episode. So thank you again, Eliezer, for joining us for this. This is an unexpected pleasure. You're quite welcome. So I don't know who wants to get started here. Um, I know we've got kind of a crowd, so I'm planning on not doing all that much talking, actually, just because uh, I feel like a lot of the you know questions we have kind of probably overlap. So I think um, you know most of them have to do with the the writing process, less about like can Phoenix travel you know travel faster than light or something. I think it's less world trivia like that, and, and more like uh, kind of I don't know how to put it exactly succinctly, but I think. Um, what was it, Brian? What was it like writing under a microscope? Was that the phrasing you used? Yeah, that's probably yeah the big one is because I was thinking that the whole time we were writing this along is like, what? How much did that sense of like scrutiny of you know a massive horde of a fan base who's hyper interested in every last little detail like what? How did that affect just like the process of writing and and you're like oh you know should I get this or that detail right? And yeah, and I guess just because I think that's like pretty different from any quote normal writing process, which is normally a pretty solitary activity. But the, like knowing as you wrote a chapter that you were going to put it out and then have the considered opinion of a thousand people at the same time. Like, was that weird? What was that like? Uh, that was much more normal from my perspective than before there was a subreddit. And what I mean by that is that uh, back when back before there was an organized community uh, analyzing um, methods, I would write chapters full of subtle hints, which is the mode of writing that comes natural to, naturally to me. And very few people would get any of it, which, and I, and I would tell myself, you know, well, by the time I get to the end of the book, they will go back and read it again and get all the subtle hints that time. Um, but... Uh, actually actually having a community doing the analysis caused them to get a lot more of the hints. And there was much more of a sense of feedback of how many hints have been gotten so far and what new hints do I need to put in? So I would say that from my perspective, it's sort of like the difference between calling out into an echoing void with, you know, like occasional voices in the wilderness shouting back and actually talking to somebody. Oh, that's cool. And so it was, it was kind of a sense of having a conversation. I guess um, was a, a sense of feedback is the way I would put it. Okay. Like, like you, you, you don't just write and have it fall into nowhere. You see what's happening as a result. Okay. 
Did you get it? I guess like my what stuck out to me is like would would this be a weird experience for me? Would be like being self conscious of how is this being you know perceived or accepted? Like being hyper worried about everybody's opinion about it. Um, not so much on on like you know plot issues or the the puzzle kind of part of the book, but just like like oh I hope they like me. Um, did that was that like scratching in the back of your head or did, was that not a not an issue? I, I think that's sort of not the way I'm internally organized or something. Like, I I worry about whether I'm communicating the thing I intend to communicate. By the time I started writing HPMOR, I'd already had a life before then. And in this life before then, there were already vast numbers of people online deliberately misinterpreting me and hating me to a <laughs> much greater extent than happened with like the slash r slash hpmor subreddit or anything i mean there are sections of the internet that make a small habit out of grossly misinterpreting anything they can out of the three chapters of methods that they actually read but that's that's not like the subreddit or anything so if anything i would say that compared to my day job um like the 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 loud target audience that was discussing hpmor at the time it came out was really a lot more friendly and cheerful than <laughs> a lot of the people that i'm used to dealing with so <laughs> um, yeah so, so that particular worry not really um on, on the other hand uh there were like consistent divergences between how i meant the story to be taken and the way that that um like many people or like such statistically or like the statistically distorted subpopulation of people that speaks on the internet where you don't know where the statistical distortion is but um but but the point is like the 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 echoes that came back from the internet the the re- the reflection in the mirror of the internet often showed like a sort of systematically divergent um uh like image of the story compared to what i thought the story was supposed to convey and oh my God! It's like you hit like <laughs> we're hitting like both exactly the two things I was most interested in talking about. Uh, so I don't want us to like hit it too soon. But that was my other big point: is like how, in what ways did you think it was kind of like misinterpreted? Like, um, like it's, where the it, crowd went off in one direction. Like, how, how do you think they missed it? So, so the first thing I want to say as a point of order is that like one person can misinterpret a story when the majority hear something else, it means you misspoke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I hear that. But like, yeah, I guess like for me, what's still interesting about that is like, where did you see those disconnects? Even if it is because, okay, you, you know, you wish you had said it differently, but like, what were the divergences between what you had intended to say versus how it was taken? So I think that the number one thing, and which is like a really clear example of like, oh yeah, that was Eliezer's fault, not the audience's fault, is that I just like way, way, way overestimated how transparent everything was. Uh, I, I, th- I think that the, like the, like my intended reading experience of HPMOR is I think the experience you get when you're reading it the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is like a lot like the way, like when it is being read by, when it's sort of like crowdsourced reading and everybody's picking up on every little detail, like the kind of like the first read kind of is like the eighth read. Because uh, it's you know a hundred people at once, except that even then, like very close to the end, like um, a lot of slash r slash h was not sure that 
Quirrell was really Voldemort. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll... Which apparently I'm a super genius for having figured out that it's exactly like the original books. <laughs> he could have been David Monroe, yeah. damn it. I'm, I'm raising my hand sheepishly over here, yeah. I, I lost money on the official betting thread. Uh, I was late to the sub... Like, I wasn't part of the subreddit community right up until about the wrap of the story. And so this has apparently been more or less... Uh, the majority opinion there, I guess, when I, so I made the bet and then people are immediately like, okay, yeah, the people, we already have ideas. I, f- I made two bets. One, I think about who Baba Yaga was and then one about Quirrell being Voldemort and I lost both. Um, but it, uh, that, that I think there was another example of people taking things wrong. And this was something that I was just a, a wonderful thing that popped up during the course of this podcast. So like, Brian was never a big fan of the character. Well, he liked the character Professor Quirrell. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you never like liked him like a person. And oh yeah, oh yeah. And, and so I and I would and I would submit neither did Eliezer. Well, so this was the fun part was <laughs> on one on one of the uh, subreddit discussions uh, that Cron Oblivion puts up for every episode. Um, people were like, I can't believe Brian, you know, doesn't you know he's hating on Quirrell like this or whatever. And Eliezer, you just chimed in with one sentence was, you are not supposed to want to be like Quirrell. <laughs> and Brian, I think, was very vindicated by that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say that I like or I like. Hmm. I, I think that Quirrell's a sufficiently central character that I don't have that as an author, I don't have the relationship to him of liking or disliking him like like Tracy Davis. I sort of like, but by the time you're getting to to Hermione or or Harry or Dumbledore or or Quirrell, like these these people are 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 too close to the to the center or something. Yeah, said, but like the the idea of like charismatic psychopath was what you were going for, right? Like not a not um, a warm fuzzy person you would ever want to like cozy up to. Yeah, if like like I appreciate that. There are certain people who who may want to take Quirrell home and feed him, or like be taken home by Quirrell and eaten by him. And you know, people people have their kinks. You you must let people have their kinks. Um, but but in the sort of like uh, like you're not supposed to learn how to be a human being from Quirrell. <laughs> but he was just so. I don't know. The thing I liked about Quirrell is he almost seemed like that was that was the point of of being the nerdy kid that had to that had to that valued being right more than he valued like being popular. It was eventually you would get to be like Quirrell, where you were you knew things other people didn't know, and you had power, and you were extremely competent, and you didn't really have to take other people's bullshit. You didn't have to pander to them and be popular because you were powerful due to the things that you could do and that you knew. And so there's there's a great deal of attraction to that, especially once you you know have the David Monroe thing. We're like, see, he actually is a good person. He's just grumpy. <laughs> So you so, so much so, you know, like the chick that like writes love letters to Charles Manson in prison. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 maybe one way of looking at it is this: like, what did Quirrell learn over the course of the book? 
right that the real I know, right? yeah like yeah very like like he he sort of like vaguely started to get a sense of like oh there's something to the science thing and i should probably look into it but that sounds kind of boring but i guess i should i think the okay, other now, thing now Oh, sorry, now let me ask you that about almost any other character. What did McGonagall learn? What did Hermione learn? What did Harry learn? What did Deville learn? What did Dumbledore learn? But although that's the big, but like Harry did learn, and that's sort of like the, like that's yeah. the big thing we're following along. Right. It's like Harry's like development, like Harry. And but what Harry learned is like, oh, you know what? Being right isn't enough. Yeah, the people stuff matters. Yeah, I think I think the point well, was I, that I, I, every other character I, had I, a I, central I, level up where Quirrell like maybe got a a you know one experience point or did i miss the mark there my point is is that if you'd been meant to learn from quarrel you would have seen quarrel learning i I, I used the example a handful of times throughout the the show that like quarrel reminded me a lot of like greg house from uh the tv show house or like sherlock holmes where like there's there's qualities that you appreciate, like the things that I think Inosh listed off. You know, the the hyper competence, the the independence, uh, being above the uh, criticism of others or something. But it's never the kind of person you would want to be. Um, like, and, and you know, as, as an example, like you know, House and Holmes are both miserable people, and so is Quirrell. I I was kind of curious. Did you like alter your writing over the course of the five years when you saw how much people, some people were latching onto Quirrell? Um, I'm not. I'm not actually sure. I I I feel like I like maybe I was just too optimistic or something. Although I I don't really feel like that optimism has yet been disproved. Um, I think I felt something like I will go on playing Quirrell straight. And at the end, it will be clear that Quirrell is Voldemort and people will get the point. Yeah, if I may, um, I think this is the phenomenon of protagonist goggles, which I very much saw um, when discussing Worm at great length, where basically the average reader is going to see the story through the eyes of the protagonist. In the case of Worm, you have a character who is really good at justifying herself and thus everything she does seems justified. In HBMOR, you have Harry, who sees Quirrell as a magnificent badass, and thus you see him that way. Like that, That's just the way most people read, actually. And so, yeah, like you say, after you go through the whole story, you realize, like, oh, Harry was tricked. I was tricked. Then you can read it correctly. But you really do have to have that full experience in general. I mean, when I when I started out, I thought the experience of reading the story the first time was going to be that there's this like adorable, precocious genius kid under the shadow of Voldemort, oh. <laughs> and and this is apparently not quite the, the first reading experience. <laughs> but everybody digs that shadow, <laughs> the unexpected bit. Brian, not, I can just. Everyone. I can just picture Brian stroking his goatee in uh, self congratulations because that's been his read the entire time, and he got he got some shit for it throughout the entire story. And like, and now at the end, like looking back, I can sort of see what what's going on because I think, um, like, this is one of those stories. I wouldn't say like unusually so, but like, not all stories are so much about like this character has changed a great deal from beginning to end, and I think this is very much one of those stories. But then, like, okay, so now having read the whole thing, I think your brain sort of, like, wants to turn Harry into one thing um, and kind of forget that 
you know, chapter five, douchebag Harry is not the same as empathetic, humble, um, caring chapter 122 Harry. You kind of like turn them, you know, turn them all into one person that's kind of somewhere in the middle. And so then like the things as I was going through and then like the things that are off-putting, which I think like Eliza, like you put them there very intentionally to be off-putting. Um, people then start to want to kind of like justify and, and kind of like fall back on the like really obnoxious theory that like, oh, just because he was correct about the issue makes it okay that he was a dick. Um, I, 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 so, so I did not put it in to be off-putting. I put it in to be true to character. And uh, Harry, especially at the start of the story, does not care very much whether he is being off-putting. Yeah, um, and, and and like that was on purpose, right? Like, like, and that, well, that was like a conscious difference between beginning Harry and ending Harry. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think I sort of, I, I don't think that quite matches my ontology. Like, Harry is being true to himself in one way at the start at the start of the story, and then he's being true to a different self at the end of the story. But, but Harry is never going around being off-putting. Like, occasionally yeah. he gets offended to somebody at the point of, of, of wanting to deliberately insult them. But, but, but he is not thinking about the reader. The, the reaction that you of a reader has is not what Harry's own inner life is about. Now, I'm wondering, like, when, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and actually, that's something I really like. Something I really liked about the way you write was kind of like that. I think I said a lot. Uh, respect for the characters in the story where you like just sort of set them up as actual people and then watch where they go without trying to kind of, you know, dictate that. But, um, but I guess what I was going to ask was, is that, was it in that, in that beginning, was that like a conscious decision of, okay, Harry's going to start out being a person, you know, less um, concerned about like what you call like people stuff, um, and then towards the end, more concerned about that. Was that something that you, was, was that an idea that you had from the beginning? Um, let me, let me actually think back for a second. So, so one thing I, I should say as a preface is that there's, um, there was a remark once by, by Stephen R. Donaldson that has really stuck with me over the years of writing, um, which is that in a melodrama, um, characters wear the same masks from start to finish, and in drama, they exchange masks. Um, and Stephen R. Donaldson used the example of uh, his the first novel he wrote in a series. Uh, I think it was "The Gap into Conflict," um, in which a a hero, a victimizer, and a victim all exchange all trade masks in a cycle. Um, and you can see some of this this influence in HPMOR, where by the end of the story, uh, Harry has taken off the hero mask and given it to Hermione, and put on Dumbledore's mask instead. Hmm. Well, how would you and, describe Dumbledore's mask in that metaphor? Um, I mean, in this metaphor, it's you know just that just the the sort of the role of the mysterious old wizard, where where roles like mysterious old wizard are are very much things that people do and not things that people are. Like there was more of that than Dumbledore, and by the time and by the time Dumbledore has taken off the mask and handed it to Harry, Harry is more than a mysterious old wizard too, and Hermione is more than a hero. Uh, um, but uh but but like so like it was certainly like always intended from the very beginning that Hermione was going to end up as the hero by the end of the story, um which means that Harry was always going to grow out of being the hero um but 
uh, a lot of the way the like sort of specific ways in which Harry grew out of things, I think like developed a lot more organically. I, I, I threw catastrophes at him. He came through them. He, he learned. Um, I, I didn't like plan. I didn't plan out. I didn't, I didn't plan out the, the person behind the mask growing in the same way that I planned out the exchange of masks. Does it feel sad to you that Harry became the mysterious old wizard? Because it just seems like a less energetically fun role than to, you know, be the hero going out and doing the swashbuckling. Um, it almost seems like something like after you've received a major injury and you can't be the hero anymore, then you retire to mysterious old wizarddom. I used to be an adventurer like you, then I took an arrow in the knee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean... Dumbledore says much the same thing to Harry, I believe, at some point in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, like by the time, like like at the beginning of the story, um, before the readers have been lured into the trap of identifying with the character, uh, the character is running around having lots of fun, and the ominous shadow of Voldemort is, you know, like not really affecting things very much, or as the case may be, entirely unperceived. Um, <laughs> you know, which, which again is not necessarily the, the reader's fault. There were other possible interpretations than the one that I had stuck in my own mind as the only possible one, because I was the author and knew what I meant. But you know, um, you know, but the, but it wasn't in, the, in necessarily in the text per se. Uh, but, but, but anyways, uh, but yeah, so like Harry's running around and having fun. Then by the end of the story, there's the, the oncoming end of the world and he's sort of trying to grow up and deal with it. And that is, uh, that is legitimately a bit less fun. And yeah, that's, that's a thing. What can I say? Would you see like if, if, you know, we were going to go a million more pages of this, would you think then that like the natural outcome of that is that? someday Hermione becomes the mysterious old wizard to some other new hero? No. <laughs> no? All right. Never mind. So it's not, it's not like, a, like a cycle. Yeah. I, 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 I feel like, like that kind of, like that cycle might go on for like, I don't know, like three steps maybe, but the notion that the cycle goes on forever is, is not my kind of, cool stuff unless there's <laughs> unless there's some kind of like great evil machine behind it all that the protagonist is figuring out how to break <laughs> gotcha. You're right. magically imposed to be in this cycle forever um because because reality isn't like that but like the only way reality would actually be like that is if something were forcing reality to be like that i feel like some of my my methodology as a writer is to be like okay suppose this was actually true where are they in Tegmark Four, such that this thing is true? Where are they inside, like all the possible universes weighted by their simplicity, such that the th- this thing has been true? And if you're in a place where there's some kind of vast cycle of mentors training heroes, which has gone on for thousands of steps, there's clearly some kind of machine in the background operating this thing, and somebody needs to go break it. <laughs> well there is the machinery of people aging so they can't hear it anymore but i agree that that is a machine that needs to be broken but 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 more generally you know like uh D- dumbledore and dumbledore didn't just give his mask to harry like dumbledore has trained multiple heroes yeah and 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 not all of those became old wizards right most so, of them died if i recall <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm fascinated by the idea that that the story you know your approach to writing is basically 
uh, trying to be as as true to life as possible because uh, you know the the veracity of the characters comes across, but also the most likely thing that happens when you put Harry in Azkaban is that he gets caught. So so clearly you're also injecting a degree of how do I make this entertaining, and so there there seems to be a tension between how do I make the most entertaining story and how do I make the most true story. Do you do you have a mode by which you navigate that tension, or does that, that not seem like a tension to you? Well, I mean, one thing I did was just like cheat on a grand literary level by having the prophecies in the background <laughs> which, where i can always you know like where i can always resort to the excuse of like well sure that could have happened in real life if you've got those prophecies going on right <laughs> um but more than that uh i would say something like um there's there's this like divergence between what people intuitively think will work and what actually works and um like uh like if i was going to you know channel early harry and start citing studies i would mention this the uh the study that harry mentions quite early on where um if you ask people like what do you think is the average case and what do you think is the best possible case uh the the two groups give indistinguishable results and reality is usually slightly worse than the worst case scenario um and so when you when you sort of if if you just sort of like play out the average case you're not quite being being true to life mm-hmm. but you're you're not like visibly like like if you imagine a sort of alternate universe that that ran the way that people thought it was supposed to work you can't make things go better than they would in that universe for the sake of plot mm-hmm. but you can make things go the way they would go in that universe instead of the way that they would that they would go all the way down here in actual reality where the vaccine gets designed in two days and then the fda takes nine months to improve approve it because the bioethicists don't want you doing humans challenge trials like just hypothetically speaking just <laughs> like like things out here in reality are just like so much gratuitously worse than you would imagine them going if you were just trying to be like realistically pessimistic in a story um so so like it's like harry's in azkaban and and he's trying to build his rocket to get out and and when i got to that part of the story i realized that if you if you take a rocket and you glue it to a broomstick you are just inevitably going to die like even (laughs) for a story that was that was too much i couldn't make myself believe it long enough to write it down so so i so so i had uh quirrell wake up and um, uh, and and uh, apply a charm of flawless function to the rocket and attach it to the broomstick using an actual proper spell. And, and then I could believe it. I could believe that that would work inside a story. Now, in real life, you know, the rocket drifts off course and crashes into the walls and they all die. But but that that doesn't have but, to happen. But Coral said, hand us, wave us, and we're good. <laughs> yeah, the spell of flawless function is something we spent a few minutes tossing around because that seems like... <laughs> overpowered as all hell (laughs) i want one of those it only works on non-magical artifacts and those aren't very useful right right so all repairmen out of business overnight yeah so what did your notes look like i've always been curious about i mean this is just something i'm generously uh, generally curious about is um something this something you worked on for five years something this complex with this many parentheses you opened one year and didn't close for five years like did, did you have elaborate documents or is this all in your head or where are we on the spectrum between the two 
the documents were were mostly just sort of like snatches of future scenes that sprang into my head and then i wrote them down so that they they wouldn't get lost and um that that comes with its own disadvantages because then you have to to wrestle the story around to the point where you can like finally put down that scene in your head um like that scene where where harry kills the troll and hermione dies just played out over and over and over and over in my head again and again for for several years because that is what these scenes do until i have published them not even until i've written them until i've published them they just keep on playing out of my mind over and over until i have put them out of my mind and into other people's minds like some kind of horror movie (laughs) and when i finally got through that scene um i was like okay yes I have now written Hermione's death and she can stop dying in my head over and over and over. That was like a couple of years that you had that scene envisioned before you actually wrote it. Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, but, but I think, but by, but I have like sort of associated other like scattered notes, but I think that, Primarily what was going on is that there were scenes that were the, that I was using as the anchor point. And then knowing that these things would happen later, I could, I could make the rest of the story be made entirely out of foreshadowing of them. Makes sense. Matt, you had another good one. Um, like, uh, were there, and I guess this, this kind of relates to people's, uh, miss, uh, I don't know, misattributing how they ought to orient themselves in relation to quarrel, um, but were there like any motifs or concepts or hints that everyone missed or that like people still haven't figured out? You know, every every now and then I'm tempted to just go through the whole thing chapter by chapter and create a vast document called Methods of Rationality, The Hints You Missed. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it would just take too much time, so I haven't done it. But, but I, every now and then I still feel tempted. Um, I mean, the main thing that comes to mind that, that nobody ever got was Hermione. What about her? Um, she's got multiple themes going on, Mo- like multiple deep literary themes, which basically nobody have has got, which basically nobody got, and it actually caused me to stop believing in the concept that there is such a thing as literary analysis because people looked hard at HPMOR. It was ridiculous the things that the, the hints that people got once once there was actually a subreddit devoted to it. There, were, there was somebody who read chapter 28 of HPMOR and goes, Aha, I present to you the tale of Peter Pettigrew, the unfortunate metamorphmagus, which I deduce because it has been, because it says in this paragraph over here that there's a metamorphmagus in Hufflepuff this year. And the author wouldn't do that unless it was important for us to know what, meta, what metamorphmagi were. So that must be um, important to something in this chapter. And the obvious thing it's unfortunate, it's, it's, uh, it's relevant to, is the story of uh, Peter, is the mystery of Peter Pettigrew and Sirius Black that we've been presented. And I was just like, I didn't expect anyone to get that until several years later. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like once you hear the person going, I'm not serious, I'm not serious, I'm not serious in Azkaban, maybe you get it then. But no, they got it like straight off of chapter 28. <laughs> and so if, what was and it about people, Hermione that they missed? 
And if people can do that and and not notice any of the like deep literary themes and and subtlety and commentary that that Hermione is meant to represent as like a commentary on the rest of Harry Potter fan fiction and so on, then literary analysis is plainly impossible unless the author has just like plainly told you what the theme is. And the people who are like reading James Joyce or something and claiming to deduce literary themes in there, they're all making that stuff up. You can't actually do it. I have like had the answer sheet. I have seen people how close people can get to the answer sheet. And literary analysis is just plainly impossible. Nobody got that Hermione was a Mary Sue, for example. Okay. Interesting. One, one, one quick fun tidbit is that Brian actually got a, a major in English before switching to a real job and, and doing software development. <laughs> before so, I found out it won't pay the rent. <laughs> but, what does that mean to you when you say she's a Mary Sue? I mean that she, you know, like just strides into Hogwarts, does better than Harry the protagonist in all of his classes, gets into a, you know, like a sort of romance with 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 the with the main character even, um, you know, it, you know, just generally sort of walks all over everything, um, and then by the and then by the end of the story, she's come back from the dead, and uh, you know, has teeth made of pearly white unicorn horn. Don't you? But generally, don't and you is, have to and be is secretly, and, and is secretly the uh, uh, grand niece of Professor McGonagall. Wait, what? <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's like they did get that. Somebody, I think, did get that. That Hermione was probably related to Professor McGonagall, um, although they didn't get the like Grand Mary Sue theme that that was meant to represent. Um, uh, but. Uh, like the, the the clues there are like sort of rather subtly hidden. We talk about like, like Hermione's mother um, thinks about how she herself had a magical. Um, I, I don't remember if it was if it was her magical mother, magical father. No, it was magical mother that died in a war. Um, McGonagall holds Hermione in a way that's su- such that somebody looks at it would think that McGonagall was holding her daughter or maybe granddaughter. And she says, I had a sister once. Uh, Am I right in understanding that none Harry. of the had any idea that Eliza did, did this? This is brand new, brand new information to me. Yeah. Brand new to me anyway. I knew it all along. Wasn't confused at all. I had heard the theory before, but only because someone else had, you know, posted, posted that thought. I didn't come up with it my own at all. I mean, you're not supposed to. I mean, like the the intended route to getting this is not that you're supposed to be able to pick it off off the very subtle hints in the text. It's you're supposed to be able to complete the pattern from Hermione is a Mary Sue. No, um, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was informed that you're not allowed to have supposed to do anything. <laughs> that was yeah. That was me. <laughs> there, there was no intent. From that was that was a point of contention. Yeah, th- this was. A, I, a, I kept going. I was like, you know, I don't think we're supposed to. Th- you know, like, I don't think we're supposed to like this behavior in Harry right now. And there was a lot of things like, what do you mean supposed to? There's no supposed to. I, I mean, so so you're not necessarily supposed to like or dislike characters, but uh, but like when it comes to the like vast amount of puzzles in in, in the novel, I did have like intentions there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about death of the author in general? Because I'm a big advocate, but as you know, an author, you might not feel quite the same. And what he's saying uh, is I, that he wishes you were dead. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm also a great advocate of death of the author. I think that like the text is the text, and like there is no such thing as word of God. There's just opinion of God. 
yeah, any, anything that's not in the text is not real as far as I'm concerned. So how did that inform like, uh, like how you felt when you did feel like the audience was not, you know, was reading it differently than you intended? Did you purely just take that as a, oh, I should have written that differently or? Um, it, 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 I almost always took it as I should have written it differently. Yeah. Hmm. Or, or, or as the case may be like, um, like, I guess this writing is okay, but you know, not the piece of writing that I thought it was. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess though, like, but like as the dead author, like your point of view isn't just that like, oh, I should have written this differently, but like the theory of the death of the author is that, oh, I meant nothing. Like I, Eliza Yudkowsky meant nothing when I wrote this. And the way that people are interpreting this is apparently the story I wrote. And my opinion about it is irrelevant. And that's the part of it. Like it, it sort of turns you into like an abstract being that doesn't exist in the universe. Well, that's plainly false. If nothing else, I do read the things that I write. <laughs> I, I certainly have at least as valid an opinion as that of any other reader. <laughs> you can squint and say, you know, I think the author meant this when they wrote. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess like, well, what's, what's always strikes me as creepy about like the death of the author idea is that uh, it would be that like, oh, no, you know what? Curl's actually pretty fucking awesome and we should just run with that. And all this other be this other super Voldemorty behavior is totally justified. And we really like that Harry's being a dick right now. Like if you're going to run, you know, if you're going to take the death of the author theory to the wall, like that's the way it goes. It's like, oh, no, you know, there's just some version of this story where it's totally OK to be like this. And it doesn't matter that Yudkowsky doesn't think you should be like Quirrell. I do. And I guess in some like abstract philosophical sense is blah, blah, blah. But like, it doesn't seem like a very rewarding way to read stories. Well, I mean, if the story I had... think those readers are too alive and should maybe die a little bit themselves. <laughs> <laughs> <They're>... Holy shit. <laughs> They're... I mean, but just like a little. I mean, not like all the way dead. Just like mostly Just dead. a little bit. I, I, think, no, I, I, I mean, like, like Quirrell's not supposed to be awesome he's supposed to be quarrel like if i had any objection to the like like there's like like death of the author yes but um at the same time i feel like my opinion as a reader is that stories should also just sort of stand on themselves and should should have should should have their internal structure that is so tightly woven together that 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 people cannot just like I don't know, like like pick them up and reinterpret them without sounding like idiots because yeah, that's not clearly like, not what's in the text or something. They're not Rorschach ink blots where you can just make them mean whatever you want. Yeah, but a lot of people that love, um, you know, Monroe Quirrell also love Young Harry, and I don't think that's a bad reading. It's just, I, I think it's an entirely valid reading up until the point where you know it's revealed that Quirrell actually was Voldemort, not Monroe. But if that hadn't been put there, I don't think it's that bad to to like some aspects of, of well yeah but, I mean, and that was like probably my the thing that rubbed me wrong the whole way with you know debating the peanut gallery about how awesome that behavior was is you're having to abandon the idea that uh that there's that looking down your nose on the rest of you know mere mortality and thinking you're better than them and therefore they all need to shut the fuck up and do what they're told is you know not awesome behavior um and to you know idolize quarrel and and be attracted to that whole thing is to overlook that idea. And this is me putting words in your mouth, Eliza, but what you like, it seems to me like that was, 
it was on your mind as you're writing that behavior into Harry that he's a person looking down his nose at people that he sees as less than him. And the person doing that is Voldemort. Like it is his internal Voldemort that sees himself as better than the rest of humanity. And that wasn't an accident or a coincidence. Um, I, I, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when I, when I started the fan fiction, I thought it was going to be read mainly by people who had read lots of other Harry Potter fan fiction. Um, and I overestimated how transparent various things were. And I thought that, uh, like, you know, by the end of chapter one, or, you know, at most by the end of chapter three, people would have wor worked out that the premise of the story was that the Horcrux had integrated itself into young Harry, and he was now like Tom Riddle. Um, that was like the intended reading. Uh, and I... And I was and I was disabused of this model fairly quickly, and I had to re, like replan some of how I was going to to write things, given that it was not obvious to that to the reader that that Harry was Tom Riddle. Um, but uh, but at the same time, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there is an an author intended thing that I did, which was like, look, if you configure your mind this way, it will have the following consequences. Um, it, which is like a, a, a sort of like empirical thesis I could be wrong about. Like it could be that if you put a mind together, like I envisioned Harry slash Tom Riddle's mind, um, it doesn't actually work out like that. Um, uh, and there is even something of a warning aspect, which is, you know, like here is, here is Quirrell. Quirrell is very cynical. Quirrell is not happy. These two things are causally related. Uh, if you are constantly cynical all of the time, you may end up less happy. Uh, if, you, uh, if you constantly focus hard on how very annoyed you are with people failing to live up to your standards, you may eventually reach the point where you would, given the power to do so, casually step on them. Um, where I sort of assume that most people presented with this, this claim about the way that minds work, well, if they believe that claim, choose not to go down that particular road. Um, but, but, and that's something like the way my mind natively organizes itself is something like claims and 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 warnings and story postulates that that are interesting and perhaps have something to say. Um, but there's also, but there's a there's a reading which is something like, ah, yes, we are meant to like this character and dislike that character and be on this character side and be on that character side. And, and there I feel something like, but all of that stuff is, is outside the universe. A, like, like, like Quirrell's attitude. Like this is a fact about Quirrell. This is in the universe. What happens to him is in the universe. When I construct these things, I'm constructing a universe out of things that are in that universe. How do you construct a universe out of liking Quirrell or or being on Quirrell's side? Like this is this is not my ontology. So this is interesting. I mean, my 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 understanding, which may be completely wrong, is that one of your goals in writing HPMR was to sort of uh, illustrate how to do this rationality thing. Like you know, the sequences were here's the sequences. It's it's intellectual. It's for your brain to think about and understand. But here's a character who actually is sort of embodying it. And I mean, in a certain sense, that's the role it served for me. Like this, the sequences are great. HPMR is where you go to sort of see how that looks. Um, 
so is that just first of all is that just am i just wrong and then if i'm if i'm right it's i mean there sort of has to be two levels on which you're like i'm writing a story on one level and the story has the you know these are the things i want to do with the story and then internal to the story's world there has to be consistency and i I guess sort of what you're saying is that's not how you think about it but i guess i'd like to hear more elaboration um so first of all, you're correct, and I would only sort of modulate that in two ways, one of which is that it doesn't just present how to do it, it presents how not to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you've yeah. got to give your negative as well as positive examples. Um, and the other thing, and I think that this is like really one of the things where every now and then I'm tempted to just go and write a different preface to the story, even, no matter, even though that feels to me like cheating and not allowed, but... But still, I think like people were like, ah, oh, yes, this story is called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. The character, the, the, the premise must be that the protagonist comes in with the methods of rationality uh, and like goes to town on the wizarding world. And, and like especially people who haven't actually read the story, they think that this is what HPMOR is about because other people on the, on the internet have lied and told them that this is so. Uh, but actually what it is, it's like, Harry Potter and his acquisition of the methods of rationality, which he did not already have at the start of the story. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how right, Harry like Potter Harry, and the Harry Philosopher's Potter Stone. And the Philosopher's St- Sorry, go ahead. I was just thinking exactly what you were saying. Like Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone wasn't about him showing up on the scene with the Philosopher's <laughs> Stone. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, okay. And, and, and Harry Potter and the already defeated enemy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that this is actually one of the ways in which I was coming at this with like 40 years of old science fiction behind me and running into people who just had a different set of literary expectations. Like nowadays, you have lots and lots of stories um, whose premise is, you know, like protagonist gets amazing cheat, comes in, goes to town on a world using amazing cheat. But but this, but you know, this is this is less what what old science fiction used to be about, um, and you know, similarly, like a pretty major thing that tripped me up is, um, I wrote Harry as not a typical eleven year old, and if you read a piece of officially published print science fiction from nineteen eighty three, and the main character was an eleven year old talking like this, you would assume that this was deliberate and that you were supposed to notice. Lots of people are like, oh, what a terrible author. And not like, oh, uh, that's the Horcrux talking, isn't it? You know, what I kept hearing was a bunch of readers telling, uh, wanting to claim that they were as smart as Harry at 11 years old. While yeah, they were breaking their like, arms, themselves on the back about it. So <laughs> Harry's actually something like, um, I don't know, like, like I should say in advance that all the characters are made out of pieces of me. Like, McGonagall is made out of me. Dumbledore is made out of me. Hermione is made out of me. Tracy Davis is made out of me. (laughs) Harry is made out of me. The particular way in which Harry is made out of me is something like 18-year-old Eliezer with his wisdom and constitution scores swapped and all the brakes removed. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So would you you think... That people who really like young Tom Riddle have like some kind of weird problem the same way that those people who like uh, Quirrell have? I don't think that people who like Quirrell necessarily have a weird problem. They, they may perhaps be mistaken about who Quirrell is by the end of the book or something. But, 
you know, like you're not asking me an author question. These people are not part of my universe. I do not get to dictate how they work. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, it, yeah. it, it, that's sort of like, do you do you like John Wick? I mean, John Wick is a monster, but but we love him because that's the role he serves in the story. And Quirrell is the badass who's mostly helping our character. And so liking him, I think, is forgivable. It's just a it's just a tad confused to continue liking him after you realize he's actually worse than Hannibal Lecter. Falls apart. Yeah, like, I totally. And I, that's what I was. Was it? Were you consciously going? Uh, I think I heard Stephen call it competence porn. Like, was that a, a conscious um, effort to be like, okay, this is a particularly attractive personality for nerds, um, and I'm going to make him be this. Like, this is a kind of appealing charis- charisma kind of thing. Um, that like like w- were you going after trying to lure people into liking him and then just sort of surprised at it, how well it worked no <laughs> well, to be clear i was i was talking uh, explicitly just about his level of power and like how awesome it is to you know like yeah, and, the, the analogy to john wick you know no, not, yeah not the john wick part but like you know i totally got that too like how how attractive and appealing the idea of god i would like to be that kind of like it always felt very Robert Heinlein to me of like this, just like I never make mistakes and I can do anything because I'm just super amazing. And everybody thinks that about me. Like I got that as like the appeal of that. I totally got, but was that a, a conscious thing? Like, did you, was that what you were shooting for when you made it? Oh, okay. So, so like, so like mostly this is not how my ontology works because you're describing factors external to the universe that I can't construct a universe out of. But more than that, I do not make my stories out of tropes. I make my stories out of subverted tropes. So there's certainly a sense in which, you know, you have like the hyper-competent character. um, But Harry is, if anything, a subversion of that. Like the rest of Hogwarts thinks he can do anything, but we are watching him from the inside, watching how he was faking all of it. Yeah, but Quirrell, though, like that's – or. Quirrell is obviously, says the author, whose job it was to make this obvious and may not have done that very well, Quirrell is obviously pulling the same stunt as Harry from a different viewpoint. We just don't get his viewpoint. Uh, So so you would say like all of – so even Quirrell's hypercompetence is also smoke and mirrors in the same way it was for Harry? Quirrell knows all this stuff because he knows the secret backstory. He can guess what Harry is thinking because he knows that he copied Tom Riddle onto Harry. Mm. It's a, it, you know, this is just the same kind of trick as Harry wearing the invisibility cloak. What about stuff like, because I think part of the appeal too, though, is that he's just a wizard so powerful that he can, you know, knock 200 high school girls unconscious with a wave of his hand and dodge Avada Kedavra. Is he that- is the one pulling Harry down there. <laughs> She has had all the time in the world to set up knocking down all the girls with just a wave in his hand and faked the moment of lassitude afterwards. So I want it. So okay, everybody, everybody on this call is not Eliza. Like, like, how much do you think uh, we all fell for that as like an actual demonstration of power versus you know fuckery. I fell for it as a demonstration of like pre-planning or, or being clever because he, he even says afterwards like you don't do that kind of thing by being super powerful. You do it by being clever with your magic. And I was like, oh, okay, he did some kind of really smart, clever magic thing. But I, you know, I, I fell for the fact that, you know, he, 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 he is his own kind of 
Yeah, I didn't realize that he set up beforehand that he was going to knock them all down. Well, he so does. He, just had to, like, he confesses to that later. Uh, he tells Harry that he planned, you know, I planned to have them pull you down uh, so I could be seen saving your life. Um, yeah. yeah, I. it's interesting having that that lens on it, you, the the subversion of because you're right, you know, like Harry does all these impossible things. If you're Ron Weasley watching Harry do all these impossible things. But from Harry's perspective, he's just using all the, the cheat codes that he has. And so I honestly hadn't thought of Coral in that way before, but it makes it a lot of fun to, to think yeah, about. You know, I like one one that had occurred, you know, had jumped out was that, you know, when he seems to understand what Harry is thinking, like you said, he knows because he copied his brain onto him. But we also get to see during like those three paragraphs we have of uh, Quirrell's point of view that he gets way more than just a sense of doom from Harry he, from a distance. He gets like his full emotional state. And so mm-hmm. like he's like, oh, I can tell you you're annoyed right now, Mr. Potter or whatever it's like well of course you can you're it's not because you're reading my face my subtle cues you're reading my emotions magically am i correct in assuming that harry never copped to quirrell that he was thinking about the wrong black that they were going to break out of azkaban um i mean that that i will admit that's that that is a bit of influence of like trying to subvert standard harry potter fan fiction tropes because if you have read a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction, there is, I don't know, like some very large fraction of the stories that have the Azkaban breakout scene. Um, so I was subverting all the standard tropes in HPMOR. And one of them is that they're going to grow to the Azkaban and break the wrong black out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's what that was about. And I mean, Harry eventually cops to... Both the fact that, um, like, Bellatrix wasn't necessarily a good girl, or, or like, Eve, or, or like somebody that they should have saved, um, and the and the whole Peter Pettigrew shenanigan, um, but but the notion that they went there to break the wrong black out of uh, out of prison is something external to their universe and inside your universe where you understand what trope they're subverting there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's- I just I just see Harry as like you know we're breaking the black out of a prison and 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 when Quirrell like is like how the hell did you know that we're breaking Bellatrix out and like <laughs> Harry would just be like yep I totally knew you were talking about Bellatrix and I'm gonna die with that information <laughs> yep. oh yeah that is what that that is what that was 100% Harry's attitude I misunderstood your question <laughs> yeah Harry is like I have finally gotten to like to do something on um on the defense professor from his perspective and i don't care how wrong i was <laughs> i have taken that secret to the grave i will never occupy it's it's sort of <laughs> it, it's very fun how how much more i'm noticing like people misattributing to competence what was actually just luck as a theme in the story um this is fun or just cheating yeah che- cheating luck uh preparation yeah 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 that's fun yeah and, and i mean to be clear like Voldemort does have some pretty powerful magic going for him. Like we have, we have seen him pulling off. Like at the end, of, final end of the story, we have seen him pulling off pretty serious magic. And you know that that the spell of starlight isn't isn't uh, you know that's nothing to sneeze at either. So he, he is he is not just a bag of tricks. Uh, lest anyone think that that was the message of the story. 
I do have uh, a question that I wanted to ask mainly towards Brian, but like I kind of wanted to see if it would spark anything uh, between you guys, because I know a lot of people have come to uh, the less wrong rationality, Bayesian rationality scene through reading HPMOR. And so like I was kind of curious, um, Brian, like how has this impacted your overall opinion of rationalists or what the Bayesian rationality thing scene is after having read all this? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming back to like from the beginning where I, like in these last month or two I've thanked myself like I consciously said please don't say anything like snarky and dickish about the author because at some point you're going to be talking to him and so my thing I'm like okay I didn't like every, and and it turns out turns out Eliza you actually do deserve the level of treating you like a human that I did <laughs> but like, I, like what has been like my big takeaway from all of this has been about the community and and not about uh the the book like in enjoy like it, it really is a good story it's this this like nice kind of journey that that harry takes but like what does it say about like rationality as a community is that uh that y'all are no more immune to being horrible little mobs than any other horrible <laughs> little mob um and the same kind of group thinky fuckery is and it's like Worse because you guys tell yourselves that you don't because you're rational. Um, but yeah, so like it's what like this story, like it's this totally cool story. And it was like never at any point, like anything said here about like rationality as an idea. I think I was already pre-sold. Like I, it wasn't like something you had to convince me of. Um, but like, yeah, that like the part of this that has been interesting and maybe not always pleasantly interesting, but is this weird way that a fandom... Had, like the weird kind of like um, you know group psychology stuff took over, and and that's like a lot of what we've been talking to Eliza tonight about, like the ways in which the fandom like ran off in one direction that wasn't what Eliza put there. Um, well, in, so, in defense yeah, of rationality as a community, like rationality to me at least, like my, rationality is not a thing that needs to be a community. Like it doesn't like benefit from people like signing off on each other's bullshit. It's just a good idea on its own, regardless of whether you can get 20 people to agree with you. Aren't um, you aren't you a little embarrassed that your species has, you know, like football teams and vast communities around knitting and, and yet like the, the, the grand structure of thought and the secrets of the universe, you know, don't have football teams. I, well, no, I guess like, like, well, no, I think you and I are the same species that is wondering about the species that has football teams. Um, but for me, it's more like, yeah, football teams are fucking stupid and you guys shouldn't have made a rationality football team. <laughs> and you I, did I, and you're pretending you didn't. For the sake of posterity, I, okay, I have to so, point out that uh, Brian's, I think most of your uh, access and exposure to what you perceived as the rationality community was roughly half a dozen vocal people on discord <laughs> well so, but but i but I, I think eliza said like it's that i can't you you used a much more uh erudite way to put it but it was something about like the like consistent way that it is misinterpreted and the way that that is able to feed back on itself uh because yeah like the inner a lot of the interactions i did have were enough for me to understand that like oh this is not typical it's just i'm only hearing the toxic assholes that's just the internet though and, I, and I, the talk, but that's the thing like and and i think like that's like that's the part that's allowed to feed back on itself though like the regular normal people um having regular normal opinions about this don't reinforce one another um and so it like moves the window 
on mm-hmm. like the discussion about it. And I think it did it. It did influence like what the general perception about like what was going on in this book. Like I think I think Coral would not have been nearly so attractive if you didn't have an entire subreddit of people people justifying to one another why it's okay to look down your nose on the rest of humanity. I think that your assertion could plausibly be disproved by looking through the reviews on fanfiction.net, which didn't come from the subreddit and were mostly cast out in isolation, and seeing that lots of people there liked Coral too. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's just, I mean, like, uh, th- my takeaway was, like, the, especially because I was, like, the, the, the shtick for this podcast is, you know, me coming in as the outsider, that the more I didn't like the behavior of a character everybody liked, the less they liked my opinion. Um, and, and how much, like, being able to see that with, like, you know, with eyes, you know, not of, you know, somebody agreeing with, you know, not, not, not disagreeing, but not somebody who came in as, you know, agreeing with the entire philosophy or feeling a need to defend it, that like being able to see the level of like just social dynamics going on that are like completely divorced from like actual content. Yeah. As a, just as someone who is, who has had a a window on, on this and is not Steven, I I can, (laughs) I I can say that like, yeah, it's, it's just, it's been ridiculous to observe how like the, the tribal, the tribalism in group dynamics has, taken such a weird role here i mean it's, it's not even unexpected right it's it's weird in the sense where it's like god why does it have to be this way like why do we why do we have to operate this way but um yeah it's it, it's it's unfortunate it's an unfortunate aspect of it but it's really hard to do a show like this without you know catering to the crowd right and that's just the way it's going to be oh, yeah, and, and, the, and the problem with that is like it's that the the opinions that rise to the surface are not the typical opinions they're just the loud ones yeah right yeah and is this so so like your your species is starting out very tribal and it doesn't currently have an effective course people can take or computer program they can download and play around with or 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 training sessions they can go to the way that they go to training sessions for martial arts and so on such that they could form a group and end up less tribal. I mean, there's various bits of research into what it takes to get um, accurate forecasts out of people working in groups. And some of them have various manipulations intended to make people less tribal. Um, but my point is something like, like it's, it's difficult for, I, I don't know, like the, the way I am, if I find myself in a species like that, I'm going to be standing around making plans for, for how you get from zero to one. How, how do you how you get this group that is less tribal. And the, the way you get it, obviously, is not that Harry comes into to HPMOR with the methods of rationality already in hand, or that you tell a group, like, you shall now pride yourselves on having already accomplished freedom from, from tribalism. <laughs> right. um, so, so, yeah. So, so this feels to me like another one of those cases where... I am speaking a slightly different language than than people are accustomed to hearing, and that and that trips up my attempts to communicate, whether in fiction or in nonfiction or something. Yeah. But well, at least to me, like it doesn't feel like that. The whole weird tribalism thing doesn't. That feels like something that like sort of showed up after the fact. Like you already had this story. Like it doesn't feel to me like Harry's journey and whatever isn't about this whole tribalism thing. That was just this weird thing that 
popped up in the in the fandom. Well, what what I'm saying is something like if you don't have a, um, your your people who are yeah you know like there's nothing wrong with your species having a football team there's nothing you know it's not what's embarrassing is not if your species has a football team it's if your species has football teams but no rationality dojos um and and you know like somewhere along the line you're you're you you need to have people come together and start refining the skills and honing them somehow and i hope to help get that started and i may have to some extent failed but you know the you know like that means somebody else has to try something you know maybe our species does not have enough time left to grow up in this particular way but it's hard for me to imagine looking at that situation and and not coming up with an additional 20 different plots to try by way of trying to get things started again or something are there things that you would like to have changed like now that it's been i guess 10 years since it started that uh, just either changes that have come about from you changing as a person or things that you saw that you wish you'd done differently? Or that you would do differently now, I guess. Not necessarily that you wish you had done differently then. Yeah. So the problem with HPMOR is something like it can't be fixed, edited, even in a sort of counterfactual sense because of the sheer number of matched opened and closed parentheses. You can't... um, so, so like it's got flaws, but they're impossible to fix without building a completely different structure because everything is just woven way too tightly together. Um, it, it, like I, I think that something like um, like like the, like the main thing that comes to mind is can I patch this by by writing a different preface? Is something like the like a set of readers expect, expect a set of reader expectations that caught me off guard, where where like some people come in thinking that um, this is a story about Harry who already has the methods of rationality, um, and and he's going to like show how awful J.K. Rowling's writing was, <laughs> and you know like. I sometimes wonder, should I include a preface, which is just like, are you looking for a writing that like really goes to town on J.K. Rowling? Get lost. You're going to be disappointed. You're a kind of person who likes looking down at other people's writing. You're going to be disappointed with this thing. You're going to look down on it. That's not going to be good for you. Go somewhere else, for the love of God. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. Um, in terms of the like sort of largest literary flaw in the story, I feel like the largest literary flaw is that the the grand climax of the story is um, Harry solving what I would later call a level two intelligent character puzzle, which is sort of like a munchkin puzzle. It's like assemble these, like the final exam is like ex- assemble these facts from inside the story and come up with creative use of them. And it's not... It's not a final challenge that holds up the thematic weight of the rest of the book. There's there's something of an author saving throw that I that 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 appears in chapter one fifteen, where where Harry has to decide what to do with the defeated Voldemort, and decides to um, obliviate him rather than trying to crucio him into insanity and throwing his wand into the Dementor's nest, and and that can hold up some of the thematic weight of the book. But the the great climactic final exam isn't isn't like um who you are and and like coming to realize what what like realize that you have something to protect and um it's it's like a it's it's like it's like a a thing of cleverness that where the solution doesn't really have the 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 depth that i learned to write in the rest of the story 
And that was an example of a flaw that like just could not be fixed because of the number of open parentheses that had been set up and the amount of foreshadowing done going literally back to the first sentence of the book pinpointing that exact puzzle and that exact solution by the time i got there and 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 could sort of see the way in which it wasn't adequate it like the the the, the structure of the book was was woven together so tightly that there was absolutely no way to change it hmm. i was so confident you were going to use comed d somehow <laughs> <laughs> sure Voldemort, i've got plenty of good secrets for you but i'm really thirsty <laughs> um, um this 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 might be a, a, a out of left field, but uh, on the spectrum between zero and and full vivid uh, hallucination, how strong is your visual imagination? Extremely weak. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so when like, you say that you you had like a scene going through your head over and over, um, not much of that was was visual necessarily. Yeah, I don't see the blood. I see mm-hmm. the people. Mm-hmm. The the people are are where the emotions are at, anyways. That's so interesting. I I. Uh, I'm always shocked when I hear a, a writer say that because I'm like, oh, but surely you saw all this in your head when you were writing. But no, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah, I think that's a lot like how I read. So that makes me curious because like, I think I'm probably very similar to that. And there is something about like visuals is then the wrong word for it, but something about the physical vibe of all of the Azkaban scenes that it felt very Dungeons and Dragons. But for some reason, it like really worked for me. And I'm, it almost does feel like it, it that it has something to do with the fact that it worked for somebody who doesn't think visually. Um, was there some did did those Azkaban scenes, especially sort of like the physicality, like the the ambiance thing around how those worked? Was did that feel like different or significant to you about how you were picturing it? I don't think so. If anything, I'd say that Azkaban is more naturally visible. Like hmm. so. I know that other people are more visual than I am, and a lot of times I make a conscious effort to slow down and like focus my concentration and, and like try to visualize the scene, try to smell the scene, or try to figure out what the floor tiles look like so I can include those visual details that other people want. And and Azkaban was like, you know, like pretty fast-paced, high-tension. There were relevant physical details where I didn't have to work to see them. Those, the details actually fit into the theme. Like, they, 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 fit, like they, they matter to the story. So, I, I don't know. If I had to take a wild guess, I would say something like, um, like you got the, the sensory detail, like in, in the Azkaban arc, maybe you got the sensory details that, that even a not-very-visual person would think of or something like that yeah maybe it's just because it was like all these uniform looking dungeons that my brain didn't have to like try to draw a picture all the time i like that a- <laughs> i kept expecting to run into like a gelatinous cube or something <laughs> you, you, well, did, and, you, you ran into spheres of annihilation yeah i mean azkaban is a literal dungeon so i don't know right what i liked about the ambiance in uh azkaban and it's it's great hearing it with the insight of your uh imagination process for it is like when i cast my mind back trying to think of okay what what was it like for me to imagine being harry in azkaban and what was he going through the as far as the sensory input stuff you know i remember that it's cold that there's the ambient noise of people screaming that they used uh real torches instead of magic torches because magic was being sapped there um that it was dark you know like all those things like you said that really are there for the sake of azkaban it wasn't describing God, you know, the floor tiles or the tapestries or whatever, you know, if this was a, 
a Robert Jordan novel or or a, a um, George R. R. Martin novel. Yeah, yeah we're, we're not getting pages and pages of of superfluous detail. You get the atmosphere. I heard when you read Lord of the Rings, when you start a new chapter, if it starts out describing trees, flip a page, read the first <laughs> sentence of the next page. If it's still describing trees, repeat. <laughs> Until you get to a non-trees page. That's that's uh, sacrilegious. But, uh, but. <laughs> Eliezer, you just said he runs into literal spheres of annihilation. Is that so? It took me a second to, to understand what you're saying. That's how you uh, think of the Dementors. Um, but like, like it's interesting. Like there are these little like D and D references, as well as eight million other references scattered through HPMOR, and I'm pretty sure that I actually called it, that I like literally called the Dementor spheres of, of annihilation, which um, in Dungeons and Dragons terms are, you know, these little gaps in the world that you can control if you're intelligent enough. And they, if you fail your intelligence check to control them, they will slide inevitably towards you. Oh, neat. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Did not know that reference. I had not ever run into one of those. You, you, My DM probably wasn't that cruel. <laughs> Here's a question I stole from Wildbo. Um, who's your favorite character to write? Um, yeah, first, first, who's your favorite character to write first? Um, I'm legitimately not sure I have a, that, that, yeah, I'm not really getting a quick answer to that question. My brain is flipping through characters and the sort of like cute, ironic hip thing to say would be Tracy Davis, but that's not actually true. Okay. See, see, that's the, the Tracy Davis, Davis answer will, will suffice because the second part was going to be who's your favorite character who most people wouldn't put in their top five. Um, Tracy Davis keeps coming up, so I think that probably qualifies. But it also sounds like you don't really think of your characters that way anyway. Yeah. I, I, I think that there's some kind of whole like judgy thing whose side on your whose side are you on that. Um, yeah, like that, like. Mm-hmm. Not don't kill the readers completely, but I feel like that part of the readers could afford to die or something. Like, <laughs> like there was this used to be this old tradition of you created a literary artifact and it would stand there being what it was. And now people have Twitter and identity politics, and they think that they're supposed to take sides. And uh, it's just not the way I was raised to write things. Fortunately, it's not the way I've been. Uh, I guess. I don't know, raised if is the right word, but fortunately, that's not the way I enjoy things either. I've never liked the, I don't know, top ten of whatever the Avengers films or whatever. It's like no, they're they're all doing their own thing, you know. Um, I had I had a well, I'm gonna steal this one from Matt. Um, a, a quick question I thought it would just be kind of fun. Uh, what would you do if you woke up tomorrow a wizard? And we can stick just to your first day, or we can skip the uh, question if this it's for me or for Matt. Sorry, just for, for, for you. Oh, sorry, Matt wrote the question and I stole it. Oh, okay. so it's for you. <laughs> wake up as, wake up as a Harry Potter style wizard. And it's my first day. Mm-hmm. I am, I am trying to to figure out how hard to wreck this question. <laughs> <laughs> as hard as you can, all the, all the way, all the wrecking. So realistically, I think that the first thing I do is like, yo, talk to me. Like just into the sky, you mean? Um, it's, it's very self evident. <laughs> what has happened if I suddenly wake up with the powers of a Harry Potter wizard? Like, I know where I am inside the possible universes if that happens to me. You're inside a hypothetical question from Steven Zuber. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. There, 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 there may be larger reasons of possibility than that um, in which I could be. 
Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, like, I'm not like, well, gee, uh, I guess that there are just some, you know, like natural processes that gave me wizard powers. I'll go have fun with them. I'll be like, yo, I, I know that my previous life is over. <laughs> I know I, I, something's now listening to me. I would, I would like to like actually discuss things at this point because just giving me wizard powers leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Well, maybe you were always a wizard and somebody just gave you memories of being you. But that's not the question. Maybe you mean with possibility so low. Who is this asshole? And could he please answer some questions? (laughs) Yeah. I like that answer. I think that's better than any sort of like, well, first I would, you know, make a polyjuice potion and take over the the whatever. Yeah. I like that answer a lot. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Uh, We can't be out of fuel here. Well, I I, I mean... If we are on the wrapping up side, I wanted to ask, like, n- number one, I, I know you've written other things. And n- first of all, I don't know if they've all been collected somewhere to be to be read through. If they are, I would like to know that. And then also I would like to ask, are, are you planning on writing more in the future, more fiction? They're not very well collected. Like some of my most recent fiction is the uh, Bruce Kent stories, uh, which currently appear only on Yudkowski.tumblr.com. Um, I'm not even sure that they're properly indexed under... Uh, Yudkowsky.net's fiction section. Um, and Well, I've read those, yeah. so that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Like, I, like I, need, I need fiction that's easier to write, is the thing. I, I took a, a brief shot at uh, the, the great pits known as Glowfic to see if that would be easier to write, but it wasn't really. Okay. Uh, uh, what, was, that's, what, what was it called? Uh, Team Tyler's Fan was the name of the Glowfic that I that I wrote with uh, with Alicorn, uh, and you know that's not indexed under fiction at all. Uh, so so yeah, there's there's a bit of an issue. Like my my writings have been getting increasingly scattered as I try out different venues and like different formats, and and haven't really been bothering very hard to collect them because they they haven't like passed my own bar for sufficient noteworthiness that I feel that everyone needs to know about them or anything like that. Well, for what it's worth, I thought the Bruce Kent Manly Mongoose stories were awesome. Thank you, you're thank you. Selling them yes. short by not like promoting them more. Yeah, I found a way. I found someone who, or a link somewhere that had organized them in a way that I was able to find readable, uh, like like in order. I mean, and it's hilarious, Brian. It's basically like the the ultimate subversion of the superhero tropes. I mean, you can tell from the name Bruce Kent, uh, kind of where it's going. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, strong recommend. Um, do you have any long gestating secret writing projects that that uh, is, is this just my wish, wishful thinking here? No, uh, not that Sounds I can like tell a... you about. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so I can keep wishfully I, I thinking. Think you then. might want to ask: Do I have any gestating non-secret long projects? Well, maybe you were waiting for this moment to to tell the world. But but fine. Do you have any non-secret long gestating writing projects? Um. I it's it's not very long. I, I have I have like all sorts of bits and pieces of unfinished fiction. Um, one of which is actually like a young adult slash children's story that I'm like six chapters into and have been for several years now. Um, yeah, I, I have been focusing mostly on my day job rather than than uh, rather than uh, starting uh, rather than finishing the children's book or properly mastering the short story form would the children's book also be aimed at bringing rationality to younger people 
I mean, methods wasn't aimed at bringing rationality to younger people. and Well, not to younger people, but now younger people as opposed to older people. Yeah. Um, maybe somewhat. Uh, some of, like, my more recent writings have been more rational in passing, I, I, where, you know, if I, if I write something, there's, there's going to be rationality in it somewhere, or some kind of somebody learning something, because that's how I roll. But uh, I don't know, it, it feels like, uh, like, especially if I'm writing a children's book, which is harder, that, you know, I should just like, let it be a children's book first and foremost. And if I manage to, if, and whatever lessons work their way in there, work their way in there. In, in the years since uh, since you wrote HBMR, have you made any, you know, l- like important rationality learnings yourself where you would say, you know, if I had known this 10 years ago or whatever it is now, 15 years ago, I, I would have worked this into the book somehow because this is an important rationality concept. Like, is there anything new since then that you would say like, oh, this is this is actually critical? Hmm. Um. I, I, I have a sense from sort of watching which rationality skills people did and didn't pick up of where gaps are. And I feel like HPMOR, um, like social aspects of rationality were neglected there relative to their importance in real life. Um, I'm not quite sure that's I'd call that a, a rationality lesson that I learned since HPMOR, but it's it's more like, yeah, I, I don't I don't know, like like the, the grim truth of the matter is is that by the time you go out to the frontiers of what people are in the middle of learning, you have very often exceeded the complexity of what you can easily teach in fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, like also, it's not necessarily the most entertaining thing in the world for Harry to like implement trigger action plans every chapter. Um, if, but, see, uh, see, one of the ideas I keep on playing with is rationality, the cultivation novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, if if people are if people are fundamentally willing to read about characters spilling their chi in spiral patterns, they should be willing to read about trigger action plans. If I can write it correctly, I want to see that. I'm your audience, <laughs> Matt. You can be the chain. You can be the author you want to see in the world. Uh, yeah. Well. Okay. <laughs> I got other projects to finish first, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of the ideas I keep tossing around is uh, uh, deep magic, same as deep learning. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a lot more dangerous. Uh, well, I could always test out anything that I thought might work for actual deep learning and make sure it doesn't work before I have the magic user do it. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> what, what kind of danger did you have in mind here? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to wonder, like those like super creepy AI drawn uh, pictures that have like got dogs' faces coming out of people's elbows. I'm just trying to picture what the magic equivalent of that, and it doesn't sound good. Oh yeah, you see, you're already writing the story, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> the story writes itself. All right. The story would be real dogs out of real people's elbows. I know. That's as horrifying as it sounds. Um, let's see. I think uh, I read somewhere probably on a on a reddit thread that there were and maybe actually it's Enyash who, who mentioned this that and well, i'm assuming he read it somewhere that there were solutions to the final exam and you, you talked about kind of how you were boxed into the solution that you gave but that you enjoyed uh like i don't know if more than the one you did because you know the one you did was the one that had to happen um were there any favorite solution favorite proposed solutions to the final exam that you enjoyed um 
I think that the that that like by far the top of the list of I should have thought of that um, was Harry has the ability to cause an explosion large enough to disrupt the Quidditch game that he is backwards in time from and wasn't disrupted, which means he has the ability to threaten time. That is like a whole category yeah. of solution that I did not think about. And I'm, I'm not sure. I think I, I think I might have set it up so that by the time they were in the graveyard, it was they, they might have already been past the undisturbed the, the part of the Quidditch, the part of the Quidditch game that he knows is undisturbed. Um, I, I think I might have like I, I don't remember whether I established that or not at this point. I'd have to actually start go reading again. I don't want to actually slow this down to start go reading again. But I, I think I, I'm not sure I correctly. But but if I if if the text did not establish that they were far enough forward in time to um, be past the point that Harry had left from, then he he had the ability to 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 to. to play blackmail games with time which was like this whole very important category of solution that i hadn't thought of at all that's awesome i'm trying to remember all i remember is that he used the one or that he turned his time turner only once to get back to i think when he left uh which would have been his last turn right so uh yeah i'd have to look at it and draw a line to figure out when exactly it was but that is a really fun space to explore there um and and more importantly like you you like the information that he only turned his time turner once to go back, um, like that that comes afterwards. If I haven't established it beforehand, it's part of a valid solution that somebody offers beforehand. Oh yeah, totally. I was just trying to think of when's when uh spatially in time they were with relation to the Quidditch game. Um but yeah, somewhere I think within that window. What were you gonna say, Matt? Sorry? No, I I just it I I, I no, I, I don't know anything that that the author doesn't know. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, like uh, Harry could have still threatened it, even if it weren't um, true. But then he couldn't use uh, parcel tongue. So, no, that wouldn't work either. Yeah. Nope. I wonder what Quirrell would have seen as the threat, like how oh, he would have interpreted um, the bad the badness of it. Like, I guess he would have seen it as the like, oh my god, this is the prophecy coming true that space and time are about to be torn apart. I mean, a, a lot of people. So, uh, like, there is a certain flaw in the story, which is that um, Quirrell does a thing that Quirrell would never do in real life if he was being cautious. Okay. Uh, anyone want to guess? Letting Harry keep his wand. No. 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 That is the one we always hear about. Is it questioning Harry rather than just straight up shooting him in the face? No. All right. We've, both, See, we've that, all failed. That's the thing. Like, 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 people, people take the aspect that goes wrong and then look at that in hindsight. Um, I was thinking specifically like, of the lesson where you know why I think Harry put it: don't try and deal with a convoluted way of dealing with an enemy when you can just abracadabra them. And so that that was kind of foreshadowed as a as a lesson that you know might have come forward later. I mean, Voldemort is vindicated in a way. He's like, okay, like I don't know at what point reality is going to stop me, so I'm going, so I'm going to escalate to shooting him via a set of steps that are that's trying to reduce the danger, but maybe reality doesn't stop me by the time I can do that. And it works. That part straight up works. He gets Harry through the unbreakable vow before he gets stopped, thus saving the world. So in a way. Quirrell saved the world, <laughs> and we're right to admire it. 
So, no, you can say no. no. <laughs> you know, I'm just not. I'm just not going to engage with this whole admire versus not admire thing. He's neither admirable nor non-admirable. He's quarrel. He lives in his own universe. He does his own thing. Yeah. So, so you're saying the stupid thing he did was uh, force Harry to take the vow and make the. I I, I think I I missed the. No, no, that's that. That was a perfectly that 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 worked, and you know, it was a reasonable thing to do. I I could for like suppose that um, you know a different story had ended with uh, Moody sneaking up on the Death Eaters while all of them were staring at Harry. Somebody would have been like, clearly, you should have some of the Death Eaters facing away from Harry, looking at the surroundings and watching the surroundings. Why would the you know what and, and but because that thing wasn't depicted as going wrong, nobody noticed it as an element of strategy that could vary. Is that like, the thing that you think was that he did wrong? No, and and no. similarly and, and with the wand, you know, like Quirrell has already sort of like given Harry a chance to act against him a bit earlier, so as to because of the curse that that uh, that Quirrell set up that he's trying to get around, um, and. You know, like he thinks he has a pretty good grasp on what Harry can do exactly. He doesn't. He's not expecting Harry to yank out wordless, wandless, like wordless magic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like that. That's like I established. Transfiguration is wordless, but you know, like Quirrell is the magical expert. He's not expecting Harry to defeat him using magic. And in a way, the, the having the story, having the story like go through that is even like an example of something that I would say was subtly off theme in a way that I didn't realize until years later because I wasn't that good a writer when I first came up with the concept and didn't even, didn't even realize that H. Power is going to be this huge thing that took off and become this like big artifact thing and that's like, so like some of the basic structure stuff that I didn't put as much work into as I would have if I'd realized anyway you don't call in 36 Death Eaters that happens that that is just like a flaw in the universe that happens for the sake of drama you don't when you are dealing with time and prophecy and foretold doom you do not bring in 36 random variables some of whom you haven't seen in years that's just dumb but it doesn't go wrong so nobody noticed okay i like that yeah it it even almost went wrong when the guy tried to rally the other death eaters against him and everyone was like nope see ya Mm mm-hmm yeah, I mean, but that was that was somebody who was like pulling something that Voldemort was like very thoroughly prepared for. I I, I don't apologize for that going correct. Yeah, no, I like that. that was a good move. It's just because it just sort of felt like him going, "Oh, that's cute," and slap it away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, betrayal! I've seen this before. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 security mindset. The the thing it's not it's not about the specific threat. It's that you're bringing in thirty six wild cards, any one of whom could have could have in the intervening 10 years done something you didn't think of in advance. Like that's the thing that real Quirrell would never do. Mm-hmm. But hindsight buys people, people notice the, you know, like, like, like the, like the challenger explosion or people are like, ah, oh, you should have replaced the O-rings. No, you need to like reform your entire system to fix all the things that could have gone wrong because you don't know the O-rings are what's going to be what goes wrong. And like long before you get to the level of caution where you take away Harry's, wand you have people watching the surroundings some kind of artifact that is like thoroughly scanning whatever all magic in play and you have not brought in 36 wild cards yeah i, I mean i th- i think that's that's a that seems like a very natural mistake for people to make or a natural thing for people to overlook because i mean one of the things i've 
internalized at, at, at great pains uh, is, is, you know, the planning fallacy, to put it succinctly, but just the idea that we don't intuitively notice that we've complexified a situation by adding variables. Some, it, it has to be either we notice it when something goes wrong or we train ourselves to slow down and pay attention to these things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't shock me that, that no one else has ever pointed this out as, a, as an issue because we don't think of that naturally. As animals. But if you're looking for like author reader conflict here or something, you know, like there it is. I, I, I grit my teeth. I've, I've like set up my brackets. Like I can't like the story and the foreshadowing is not really going to work unless Harry guillotines the 36 Death Eaters. They have to be there, even though it kind of doesn't make sense. I write it. I'm, you know, like maybe somebody is gonna gonna call me out. They're gonna be like. Quarrel would never do that. And what do I get instead? Wand, 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 wand. Ah! <laughs> Thank you. I just had to scream. That will be all. <laughs> okay. Well. All right, then. Cool. Well, I, I would love to keep going, but I can't think of a better point to end on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, is there anything that, uh, anything else you want to bring up um, before we let you go? Uh, any other I, you know, I guess final screams to get out. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides Hermione being the Mary Sue that uh, J.K. Rowling was accused of making Hermione, and the great lesson here, which is that being, which is that the real problem with Mary Sue is not having teeth made of unicorn horn; it's whether you take over the story. Um, and the other themes, you know, the, the other themes in Hermione include Hermione representing the plight of the secondary character in fan fiction, who, who, um, which like she and Harry are both aware of and the rest of Hogwarts is determined to force her into that mold. It's like commentary on like all the poor secondary characters in fan fiction who just get like shoved off into somebody's harem or something. Uh, and, and, you know, there's also Hermione like being part of the exchange of masks where she gets the hero mask from Harry and Harry gets the old wizard mask from Dumbledore. Nobody, nobody did a literary analysis featuring any of this stuff. And yeah. therefore I, I reiterate that like all literary analysis everywhere must be bogus. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's not a Harry Potter fan fiction. It's a Harry Potter fan fiction, fan fiction, right? Right. The HPMR takes place in the universe of Harry Potter fan fiction and, and all sorts of tropes inside it, like the Peter Pettigrew revelation scene where, he, where, where Scabbers actually is just a rat. You know, like all of that is like set, 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 uh, set yeah, the, the whole story is like mostly set in the universe of fan fiction rather than the universe of the original stories. I'm not sure. And you mentioned that you were expecting most of the readership to been seasoned Harry Potter fan fiction readers. Um, I know that I wasn't for sure. Uh, this was my first one and principally my only one. You know, the majority of others were spinoffs of this one. There was one where the protagonist was a Dungeons and Dragons character who was teleported to the Harry Potter universe and still operates on hit points and experience points and everything. That was kind of funny. But I think that's the only other Harry Potter fan fiction I've read and it was scarcely a Harry Potter fan fiction. Uh, so I, I can see how like with the the backdrop that you anticipated not necessarily landing with everybody. And yet I would never have picked up on any of the, the thematic things you, you laid out. I am really bad at getting those, uh, which is maybe why I enjoy like not that deep stuff. Uh, <laughs> You're not so smart, Steven. Basically. We still like you. I mean, you know, if, if you, you know, things, things I want to get off the, get off my chest before the podcast closes all this stuff on the internet about how HPMOR is a diabolical plot by me to 
yeah, establish a cult that, you know, I've, I think I've like gone to some pretty extreme lengths to sort of like turn down having a cult really. But, you know, like all this, all this diabolical planning I'm supposed to have done. I didn't know the story was going to take off. I, I like, I put some effort into it cause I like to make shiny things, but you know, I'd, there might have been some things I'd have done differently if I'd, if I'd been, if I'd anticipated if if, I, if my like majority forecast had been things turning out the way they did or something, you know, it's just, it's a fanfic. <laughs> it's actually a Harry Potter fanfic. And I wrote a Harry Potter fanfic. I set out to write a Harry Potter fanfic, you know? He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> I, I'm just going to have to take your insistence as a sign that you're, uh, being uh, dishonest because that's how this works. The thing I was setting out to do was write a Harry Potter fan fiction and it was supposed to be a pretty fan fiction. It was supposed to have all kinds of intriguing internal properties, but the thing I was trying to do was make a literary artifact. <laughs> well, you did. And it was, it was, was a lot of fun. Fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. I think you succeeded you in it. Was... For... Yeah, Sorry, thank you for enjoying the artifact. That's what was supposed to happen. That was the big plan. <laughs> that's what the show was about. It was fun, uh, you know. Like I mentioned in the in the initial email, like you know, Brian hadn't read this. He hadn't been uh, part of the the rationality community, and the the goal was more just like to to go through it with with a pair of fresh eyes. And uh, Brian's also like a seasoned book reader. He and Enosh met through book club, and uh, like trying to get some some. Well, we attempted at liter- literary analysis. Brian, today we learned you failed. Um, <laughs> and you but, kept attempting to call what I was doing literary analysis. Hey, you're the one with the diploma, man. <sighs> yeah. Never going to live that English major down. I know, but, <laughs> but I, you know, as far as fan fictions go, um, you know, I enjoyed it. It contained elements of, uh, you know, growth, transhumanism, um, all, all sorts of things that I think were. Uh, I mean, the list goes on, but it was a lot of fun. And chief, you know, first and foremost, it's something that I had a great joy with, and uh, clearly, a lot of people enjoyed it too. So, um, I don't have it was, a. It was a major event in my life, and I know that it has like, I know this sounds kind of corny, but people have said that it's made their made significant changes in their lives due to this work and so like on behalf of all those people like we all just want to say that this was awesome and thank you because it really has been impactful for a lot of us i i think it's fair to say that that those positive effects came through at close to the close to the upper bound as of my estimates for for how well that could possibly have gone you know there mm-hmm. you know despite despite all the things that you know like didn't work out too well this way or that way or you know because i'm a perfectionist you know extremely died in the well perfectionist i you know can't help but look at it and see like well maybe i should have done this thing differently and this thing differently but you know if you if you compare it to just sort of like you know, like how well could things possibly go when you're writing a Harry Potter fan fiction? I, I really feel that things went pretty well compared to that. <laughs> I like that. Looks like somebody fell victim to the planning fallacy. <laughs> What's the reverse planning fallacy? <laughs> planning heuristic? Oh, I just meant, you know, things going way better than intended. But anyway, I, I, I'm trying to think of an eloquent note to end on, but uh, unless anything else, anyone else has anything else to, to say or ask, um, you gave us a, 
I think we talked about an hour and we're closing in on an hour and 45. So, um, it's too late now. You can't have them back. (laughs) I really appreciate, uh, you hanging out with us and chatting about this. Um, it was a lot of fun doing this podcast and, uh, this episode as well. So, uh, anyone else have any more eloquent closing, closing remarks? No, that's your department. No, it's really cool. It's, it's, it's neat to like get to talk to the human that behind all of the ideas that I've been reading for the last year. So thank you for an entertaining entire year. Thank you for all of the effort that you have put into the to the shiny thing that I made. I I appreciate people spending that much time on on, on the shiny thing. Well, it was a joy to do it. Um, all right. Well, I don't know how to end things, so I'll just call it here. And right. uh, thanks again, Eliezer. Thanks uh, to Inyash and Matt. And uh, well, Brian, you get a thanks too. Um, so <laughs> no, thank you. All right. I will yeah. just hey, hey. I want to thank uh, Stephen. I want to thank you and Brian for doing the show. This, oh. this, is, this is really fun. This is really fun to, to relive um, HBMOR, something that was really important to me for a long period of time, um, but it was really nice to get to uh, relive it. So I, and, and I think your listeners in general, um, you know, thank you. Thank you guys. <laughs> well, as long I, as we're doing I, that thing where sense. we're... Thank you. Well, thank you both very much. And as long as we're doing that thing where we're all patting each other on the back, uh, I mentioned also in the opening email that I ripped off the idea of, and the the naming schema from Matt's We've Got Worm podcast. So, uh, you know, this is just a, a, a collaborative group effort. And if anyone's wondering why there should be more non-football football teams, this is one reason why, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, everybody. 